Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are so grateful that Christ has paid it all. That he washes us white as snow. Though sin stains us deep, as crimson stains a garment, as red stains a garment, so does our sin stain us, prevents us from entering into your presence. But Christ's great act of salvation washes us white as snow. Not only does he save us, but he makes us new. He gives us the, the righteousness, the holiness that we need to stand before you. And as we look to your word today, and as we think about what Jesus is teaching us on the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that he washes us white as snow, he saves us, and yet he, he walks us through what it looks like to live a life in obedience to, to you. So may your, your word speak to us this morning. May it stir our hearts to desire the glorious, dutiful joy of obeying your great word. And for those who have never put their trust in Christ, whose sins are still making them as crimson, would you open their eyes, open their hearts to the truth that Jesus Christ saves, and he saves to the uttermost. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. Well, if you are... If you have a Bible, if you'd like to join me in the book of Matthew, we're going to be in chapter 5. We're looking at uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've looked together at uh, basically the Beatitudes. We've looked at the phrase, the, the idea of being salt and light in the world. And the last time we were together, or I was with you, we looked at what Jesus has to say about his relationship to the Old Testament in verses 17 through 20, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he will go on to say in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus has just said that he has come to fulfill the law. He's created new categories to understand the law. We looked at that together last time. But now what we will see is he will begin to explain what, what does it mean that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So in, the, in, in his time, in his moment, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been seen as the most righteous. You couldn't get any more righteous than a Pharisee or a scribe. So, so what does that mean? Well, Jesus will go on in the rest of chapter 5 to basically work with six couplets, six groups of two, and, and to, to really work out what, what does it mean to to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. We'll see today, we'll look at verses 21 through 30, which will deal with the aspects of anger and lust, really what, what goes on in our thought life. And then we'll see the next time we're together, the idea of, of divorce and oaths, this idea of, of commitment 
And then he'll end the chapter. He'll end it. Last will be on retaliation and loving your enemies. So they, they kind of go together in twos as Jesus is laying out what this looks like. But before we go any further, before we look any more about what Jesus would have us to know this morning, we must remember the Sermon on the Mount is written to disciples of Jesus Christ. And it is not a handbook on how to earn salvation or earn God's favor. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. Jesus is writing to his disciples saying, this is what living as a Christian looks like. And, and if you're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you do not understand the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk more about salvation later in the message. But remember, we're looking at Jesus' teaching to his disciples. And if you have put your trust in Christ, he is speaking to you directly this morning. So with that said, let's take a look at it. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So interestingly, Jesus begins with the second half of the law. The, the Ten Commandments, he starts with number six, which I think, whether we admit it out loud or not, we all think that's the, the part of the law that we can handle. I cannot murder. I cannot commit adultery. I cannot lie. Those are the things I can do. But Jesus is about to explain that that's not how this works at all. And, uh, for example, just think of the rich young ruler, right? He said, he said I, I've kept all these from my youth. It's in Matthew 19. So thinking we can keep laws like this on our own account, our own ability, see, Jesus knows that. So he's going to lay out uh, just the danger that our thought life puts us in. Look with me in verse 22. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to to the hell of fire. So Jesus is not so much speaking about the different levels or the different punishments for different aspects of anger, but what he's, what he's saying is he's, he's really drilling into to this idea that the anger you have, though not expressed through the form of murder, which would be breaking the commandment, creates something in our hearts that is an issue. See, this is what it means for Jesus to fulfill and uphold the law. See, Jesus understands the law at a deeper level than any Pharisee ever could. Now, you could make an argument that they should have known these things. That's, that's fair. But what, what Jesus is saying is just because you have not picked up the sword and murdered your neighbor does not mean you are above the command not to murder. And so he's saying if you're angry in your heart at your brother, if you insult them, if you say something insulting to them, or if you, in an outburst, say, you fool. Jesus says, these things will walk you into hell. Kent Hughes, in his sermon on this, this text, says this, Jesus here condemns angry contempt and all of its cousins, animosity, malice, hostility, malevolence, wrath. He is not suggesting a ladder of offenses that result in progressively sterner judgment, as if anger only gets a minor judgment or you fool gets something higher. He is simply multiplying examples to make the point. If you are carrying anger in your heart, it is the same as murder. So, so how does this help us understand the seriousness of our sin? 
Because Jesus will say later in the book of Matthew in chapter 23, he'll say, there are weightier matters of the law. So I would not say that the real world consequence of having anger in your heart is the same as physically murdering someone. But what they do carry is the same sin. Meaning both murder and breaking of the sixth commandment and anger in our heart put us at a dire state with God. So therefore, we're not reducing the value of life or murder, but we're raising the bar on anger. These feelings of anger, these coarse words, these outbursts of frustration, all lead ultimately to the same place, which is separation from God for eternity, if not dealt with. So this is serious. Jesus is saying the practical implications of thou shall not murder is anger in your heart is murder. Either it leads to it or because it, it, it's rooted in the same sinful desire as what murder is rooted in. If you, are not, if you do not take heed of that, it will march you through the gates of hell. But because reading Jesus' words is just so utterly amazing, look what he does with it. Verse 23 and 24. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So, what an amazing shift. Did you catch it? Jesus moves towards telling us to reconcile with someone that is angry at us. So the natural application that Jesus makes from the sixth commandment, do not murder, is if you know that someone, that you have angered someone, it is your duty to go and reconcile. So think of it like this. So the idea is, you know, Jesus was speaking in the idioms of the day, so he was an Old Testament Jew. So the idea of, of worship on the Sabbath would have been bringing sacrifices, bringing gifts. That was, that was, his act, that was the act of obedience that, that Christ, would, his first hearers, would know. So what does that mean today? It means today when we're in our worship service and we're, 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 we're giving our spiritual service of worship this morning and we realize that, that, we have, that a brother has something against us. We should stop and make it right. Now, it doesn't mean like five of you need to get up out of and run out of here. That's not the point that I think Jesus is making. But what he's saying is, rites, rituals, practices, acts of, of worship are not separated from the status and state of your heart. So if we are walking in disobedience on the one hand, it doesn't matter how many spiritual sacrifices we offer. It does not matter. And, and Jesus is saying, if your heart is not right, your worship is not valuable or that sweet aroma that we want it to be to God. But isn't that an amazing application of what Jesus says? Don't be angry. He could have said, don't be angry, so forgive. No, he says, there's, when, there, when anger abounds, go, go towards it. As firemen run into fires, Christians run into reconciliation. It's what we do. And it's so important that not even our spiritual actions, I don't want to say they don't matter, but they, they, they don't, they're not an ends into themselves. 
Meaning, we could say today, don't just think because we're sitting here this morning that, that, that our hearts are right with God. Just because we're doing this thing, singing these songs, does not mean that we are there. But and again, it, it's... And, and what's so fascinating is it's we are the ones that have caused the anger. It says, go and make it right. So it's vague here. We don't know who's at fault, but what we do know is that, that there are... There are Brothers in Christ, brothers or sisters in Christ, and we, we are the one who has either sinned or wronged somebody, and we know that this person that we have wronged is upset with us. And what Jesus says is, you must go to that brother now. And that, that's what we do. We don't wait and hope it blows over. Right? That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, it is your command to reconcile with your, with your, with your neighbors. And you know what this is like. You've been there. We all have stories of, of times when something goes sideways, whether it's your fault or not. What do you do? Do you let it go? Do you let it go unsaid? Do you hope they get over it? I think what Jesus is saying is if, is if you know your brother has something against you, you've, you've wronged them, you should turn and go towards them. which is just an amazing, just amazing application of the truth that, that our worship doesn't, doesn't matter if our hearts are not right. And we must move towards it. Remember, remember Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or just roll your eyes back to verse 9 of this same chapter, 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So maybe you've wondered... What is a peacemaker? Well, a peacemaker is someone who makes peace. And what Jesus says in regards to anger is making peace is knowing that you have sinned against someone and going to that brother or sister and making peace. Now, Paul reminds us that there's only so much we can do, right? The Spirit of God is the one that gives forgiveness. We'll see verses on forgiveness later in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but in this case, Jesus is looking at our, our seeking of forgiveness, to someone we've wronged. And so we have this example of this is Jesus saying, this is what it looks like to be a peacemaker. It means go. Humble yourself and go. And that's not easy. But the good news is it's a spiritual work and we'll talk more about that as we go. Next, Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, he uses another example that his first hearers would know. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here's another example. They would have known this. They would have known what a law court is. But I think the key to Jesus' second example is urgency. Notice he, has, he says the word quick, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Because you see that, that the handing off becomes more permanent, right? Go, go quickly before you go before the judge, and then the judge gives you over to the guard, and then the guard puts you in the prison, and then you're in prison, and then you can no longer get out. So it's this idea that almost like, like, like anger is like a prison, this, this relationship. It's like a, a, a jail, and the further down the road you go, if you don't handle it quickly, the harder and harder it gets to rectify. So the purpose of Jesus' story is, is not... To, to see this, again, as, as some levels of stages in your walk with, 
your brother and sister in anger. It's just this idea that we need to be urgent because if we don't, if we don't strike while the iron is hot, it will lead us into a place where we can't get out. So forgiveness and reconciliation are the point of these examples. John Stott said, said it this way, These extremely practical instructions Jesus drew out from the sixth commandment as its logical implications. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every possible positive step to live in peace and love with all men. So we guard our hearts from the growth of anger and we reconcile with those whom we have wronged. So we must both forgive, like in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And we reconcile, Romans 12.18, we read it before, if, someone, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Well, next, Jesus steps into our thought life in verse 27. And let me just say on the front end, it, let it never be said of Jesus Christ that he shied away from provocative topics. And while this one seems to maybe be more dangerous to some, I think it's very familiar to us as Christians. If you've been in Christian circles for any length of time, you've heard about this idea of the sin of lustful thoughts. But let's see what Jesus says here, looking in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I don't anticipate that I will tell you anything new that you don't already know about this topic. But I do want to remind you about how Jesus sees our thought life. That's the point this morning. Just like anger in the mind is like murder in the heart, so looks and glances are equal to having a sinful relationship with someone who is not your spouse. And this idea of looking with, with lustful intent, I found, again, Kent Hughes helpful on this. He says this, Jesus does not mean that it is wrong to look at a woman admiringly, but it is wrong to do so lustfully. He does not forbid the natural, normal attraction that is part of our humanity. What he forbids is a deep-seated lust that consumes the inner person. The look is not casual but persistent. The desire is not involuntary or momentary, but cherished. It is not the first glance that is sin, but the second that swells with lust and feeds upon the subject. Jesus' language is perfectly calculated. He uses a judicial form of statement that gives his pronouncement a final authoritative ring. So Jesus is cutting to the hearts of his hearers, and they don't even know it. Because again, remember, the idea is, if the commandment is, do not commit adultery, I can do that very easily. And again, they should have had a category for this, right? The idea of, thou shall not covet your neighbor's goods or his wife. So they should have known the 10th commandment, but for whatever reason... The, the functional working out of this commandment in the life of the people that Jesus was ministering to was one that, this is one of the easy ones to keep, no problem. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The sin of do not commit adultery goes deeper than you think. So this is serious business. A look, a look is the same as a relationship. And the implications are staggering. And it means that, again, because the Lord looks on the heart, all things, said or unsaid, are looked at and judged by God. 
Now, with that being said, what is Jesus's answer to that? And if you think the, the, the drilling down on the commandment is powerful or, or deeper than you thought, his remedy is also deeper than you would think. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right hand, excuse me, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. So again, Jesus is working two by two here, right? Eyes and hands cutting off or your whole body being thrown into hell. So he gives one remedy, but he repeats it. And I think I would call it just radical reductions. And I, on the front end, this is utterly countercultural for us today, is it not? Name one thing that the world says it's okay to cut out of your life today. Name one thing. See, in a time of excess and prosperity, we deprive ourselves of nothing. The world does not stop you from taking your fill of anything and everything you want. And this is especially true within the sexual landscape. And we, we can see it everywhere. But Jesus is focusing specifically in this arena now. And Jesus is getting not only to the heart of sexual sin, but, but to how all sin works. Sin entices us to want it more than what God says. And now the question that Jesus puts on the table is, is it better to go without something and have God or not? The question you have to ask yourself that Jesus Christ is asking you this morning is, is obedience to Jesus enough for you? Are you willing to walk into heaven maimed and with a limp? Or are you, and are you willing to give it up to get Christ? That's what he's asking. Because here's the deal, guys. You don't need 10 steps to fighting sin. You just don't. You need one command. And Jesus gives us only one command for the sin of sexual immorality in the Bible. It's either 1 Corinthians 7, 18 or 2 Timothy 2, 2. Flee. Take your best step as Joseph and run out of Potiphar's house. It's the only answer. Flee sexual immorality. There's no 10 steps. There's no uh, off-ramp downgrading cutting out, slowing down. That's not how sin works, and we all know it. There's no, that's just not how sin works. You can't say, I'm going to do less today, less tomorrow. No, Jesus says, that's not how sin works. You cut it out or you don't. And, and the Bible is super clear. There's only one answer for, for the sin of sexual morality. Flee. Get out of there. Run. So we don't need 10 steps. We don't need that sermon that we have all think we've heard and we need one more of. You don't. You need 1 Corinthians 7, 18. We all do. But the question is, is that enough? Because Christ says you give these things up or you walk to hell. So we don't mitigate it. We don't, we don't play with it. We run from it. But then the question is, what's there to fill it? And the glorious truth of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is there to fill it. Jesus is faithful. Christ is enough for us. And let me also remind you this as we start to wrap up, that we, we cannot lose sight of the gospel through all of this. 
You can't leave here today thinking incorrectly about fleeing sin and loving Christ. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is written to disciples. And disciples have grace, the unmerited favor of God on them. God powers our obedience and gives us new desires. So remember, we saw last time, Ezekiel 36, 26, says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey them. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God gives us new desires. And this is the time we ask for them. God gives us new abilities to obey. This is the time we ask for them. See, only God and not our own discipline can get us into cha- to have changed hearts. We can't change our own hearts. We can't discipline ourselves into our own new life. We need Jesus Christ desperately, not just for salvation, but for all of life. Without Christ, none of this works. Without the unmerited favor of God on our lives, this doesn't work. Again, Kent Hughes says this, but more than that, we must recognize the absolute necessity of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We cannot mortify our flesh alone, which is a big word for kill. We cannot kill our flesh alone. The idea of fighting those desires within us. Willpower will not do it. Paul tells us carefully in Romans 8.13 that if we live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. Likewise, Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Lord who works in you. See, we can't do any of this unless Christ works in us. Are we commanded to fight sin? Yes. Jesus has strong words for that. He says, cut off your hand, gouge out your I do whatever it takes, but don't do it in your own discipline or by the strength you provide. Do it through the strength I provide, which, which reminds me a lot of Matthew 11, verse 28, which is such a, such a sweet verse, but, but if we're thinking about what, is, what does it look like, well, I'll just read it to you and I'll tell you how I got there. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Again, in this context, I would say, those of you who are trying to fight your sin under your own discipline or under your own ability. Come to me, you guys, who are laboring and are heavy laden from your effort. And what does he say? I will give you rest. Now, what does that mean? Does rest mean I will... You can stop fighting now. You can stop growing now. You can stop being sanctified now. No, look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Remember, a yoke is something that you put on to do work. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is saying, this isn't about discipline, no discipline. Work, rest. What he's saying is, you don't understand. The way to work is through my rest. The way you fight sin is through the grace that I supply. So come to me. If you're, if you're tired and you're weary and you're heavy and you're saying, I'm fighting these sins, these, these, these sins that are in me again and again and again, I'm fighting, or I don't even want to fight anymore. What Jesus is saying is, you're tired because you're not carrying the right yoke. 
You're not walking the right way. Come to me, Jesus says. I will give you rest. Not rest from the fight. Not rest from the work. Rest from your own abilities. And he will say, I will give you a new heart. I will give you new obedience. I will give you new abilities to walk. And this yoke, this, this new work you do is easy and light. And you might say, the sins I'm dealing with are not easy or light. And I would say 100% that's true. All of our sins, whatever they are, are not easy and not light. But the supernatural power of Jesus Christ and the, and the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of the believer is that it is no issue for God. There's no sin he can't walk with you in. Now, does this mean you're going to be perfect? No. Right? Again, the other thing I don't want you to leave here thinking is after one message, a couple of verses, you think, I will never struggle with any sin ever again. That's just not true. We can see that with our own eyes and our own life. And the Bible is pretty clear. We, we will continue to sin the rest of our life. We will never be sinless. But the message of the Bible is as we take the yoke of Christ and we walk with him, we will sin less. And we will grow nearer and nearer to our Savior. And we will win more than we lose. We will grow in his holiness. It doesn't happen overnight. Let me encourage you. It doesn't happen overnight. Sin can destroy you and take a hold of you. I think of, of James 1 where it says it starts small and then it leads you down the path of death. Sin starts small and grows. But Jesus says no matter where you are, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're, how you're handling this, you can come to me. You can find rest for your soul. And I will give you the grace and the strength and the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light and help you walk through these things in a way that glorifies you. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Turn with me to Psalm 11. I'm sorry, Psalm 16. Is it worth it? Because that's the question on the table, right? That's the question that sin is going to ask you tomorrow. That's what sin is going to ask you this afternoon. Is it worth it? Because God's over there and I'm here with you and this sin is calling your name. And the question is going to be, is it worth it to me? Is, is, is Christ worth it? In chapter 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life, which I would say is the idea of walking in obedience to God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is it that sin tells you it will give you? Joy and pleasure. Where does the Bible say the fullness of those things resides? At the right hand of the presence of our, our Savior. The right hand of God is where true joy and true pleasure resides forevermore. Sin will tell you that this, this desire and this pleasure is good and great and forever, and we've all experienced that that sin is never good, never great, and never forever. But Jesus Christ says, those who walk in the path of life will receive the fullness of joy and at the right hands are pleasures forevermore. This doesn't mean that the fight of sin is not hard. It's a fight of faith for a reason. It's a battle. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, we read it earlier. We walk out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's scary out there. It's fear and trembling because God is holy and great and we should walk it out with the reverence it desires. But I would also argue it's scary out there. There are a lot of landmines in the Christian faith. 
There are a lot of things that, that tug on our hearts and our desires for, for joy and pleasure. And, and what the Bible says is don't twist it. Know that the fullness of joy is found in one place and one place alone. That's at the right hand of God. So remember these things. Turn to him. Trust him. Believe what he says. That's the paradox of the Christian life. We have to believe what is said to us regardless of how we feel. I appreciated how Mike prayed this morning about being the God over our feelings too. Because sometimes we, we, we think, oh, I know it in my head, but I don't feel it in my heart. The Bible speaks to both. And we have God's word, which, which he plants deep in our heart. And the more we know the word, the more we know what God has said, the more we trust what he has said to us, the stronger our faith grows. So as we close, what about you? Have you ever put your trust in Jesus Christ? Because as we've been saying, this, this Jesus says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So I said earlier that maybe you are a follower of Jesus who is trying to fight sin in your own, in your own discipline. Maybe you're in a different state. And you're trying to earn salvation from Jesus Christ by discipline and work. And Jesus says, come to me and rest. We don't earn salvation by anything we do. The only way that we stand before our God in heaven, completely justified, is by the, the faith, the righteousness, the sacrifice, the blood, and the resurrection that Jesus Christ offered for all who would put their trust in him. So if you are sitting here this morning and you've said, I've tried it my own way. I've, I've tried to earn this good life. I've tried to be a good person. I hope that God will see the things that I'm doing and think to myself or think that I, he'll let me in because I'm trying to do good. Remember, Isaiah 66 says that your righteousness, your good works that you do are like a filthy rag to God. Because our sins have created a separation between us and God. So if that's you, and if the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you have sin and you have these desires to try to earn something from God that can't be found, turn to Jesus Christ alone. Believe that he is the fulfillment of the law as he said he was. Acts 16.31 says that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And once saved, he also gives you the, the righteousness that, that he offers the great exchange, he, he clothes you with the righteousness of his obedience. See, that's, that's, that's important today. Because as we're talking about fighting sin, and as we're talking about growing in, in what we call sanctification, becoming more like Christ, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, in God's eyes, you are already justified. So when, when Christ looks at you, when God looks at you, he sees Christ's perfect obedience. Why does it matter that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law? Why is it so interesting that he says your, your, your righteousness needs to exceed the law, exceed the Pharisees and the scribes? Because everyone there, everyone here, the default state of humanity is to try to earn salvation on your own ability. Uh, if I'm better than my neighbor, if we're drawing lots, he'll go, he'll go down, I'll go up because I, I'm better, I, you know, I know my neighbor steals from the garbage, whatever, right? We justify a million different ways as to why we're better than somebody else. But the good news of the gospel is when God looks at us, once we have faith in Jesus Christ, all he sees is Jesus's perfect righteousness and obedience. He sees us as sinless. 
He sees us as Christ has earned that on our account. So when you, put your, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are saved from your sins, which means God looks on you and says, you are righteous. You, in, in my eyes, you have the completed and fulfilled work of Jesus Christ on your account. Enter into my rest, he will say on that day. Enter into heaven. Enter into my right hand where there are pleasures forevermore where their fullness of joy is complete. Enter there. The moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, your fate is sealed. What we're talking about today is because unless you're saved on your deathbed, there's a life to live after you have been saved by Christ. And what we're saying is how we live, how we walk, how, what we do matters. Living to glorify God is the call of every Christian believer. And we do that by the grace he supplies through the strength that he offers. And we rest fully knowing that Jesus Christ has earned our salvation. And now, by the grace he supplies, we can now walk in newness of life and live in a way that glorifies God in every way, including our thought life. So 2 Corinthians says, let us take every thought captive and walk in obedience to Jesus Christ to glorify our Father as our spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here and think about what Christ has done and the, the majesty of the work he's done, the, the completeness of what he's done, I, I would just ask that you would wake us up to the beauty of it, to the joy of, of the fact that Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished. All who would put their trust in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven by which man may be saved. If we put our trust in that name, you see us as justified and saved. And now that that's true, God, give us new hearts that desire to live in a way that pleases you. Because Jesus Christ already gave us the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees because he gave us his righteousness. So help us to walk in newness of life. Give comfort to those who've been trying to discipline their lives under their own strength. Give them, let them mount up like wings of eagles, as it says in Isaiah, that they would, they would breathe in the beautiful joy that the Spirit walks with us in newness and, they, and gives us the ability to honor you and glorify you in how we live our lives. May we live as that kind of Christian witness. And for those here that have yet to put their trust in Jesus, show them that they are heavy they're heavy laden. They're carrying burdens that they can't possibly carry. And they're, they're trying to accomplish things that they can't possibly accomplish apart from what Christ has done. Open their eyes. Turn them to you. What a beautiful name. We sang it this morning. What a beautiful name of Jesus Christ that we're worshiping today. And it's in his name we pray.